Take your Bibles, please, if you would, to the book of Haggai, chapter number one. I can hear the collective gasp as we go to the, one of the most obscure books in the Bible. As you know, Haggai is one of the minor prophets. You say, well, what are the minor prophets? Basically, if the preacher announces his text and you become fearful that you may not be able to find it, it's probably a minor prophet. And um, if you have to check and make sure that it is actually a book of the Bible in your mind before you start flipping, because that preacher keeps saying Zechariah like it's actually a book in the Bible. If you have to make sure that it's a book in the Bible, then it's probably a minor prophet. There's a great truth here this morning, if we will allow the Lord to share it with us. Haggai chapter number 1, the Bible says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying... You say, boy, Brother Andrew, that sounds pretty Old Testament right there. Well, stay with us. Stay with us. That's given us a lot of information. In fact, that first verse gives us so much information that we are able to precisely know when this book was written to the month. This book was written in September. This particular sermon or message by Haggai came in the month of September. God is giving us precise dates for this exact moment in time because it was that important to Him. The message is this. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you? O ye to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house, meaning God's house, lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Ye have sown much, and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. What a picture of a struggling person who's trying to do everything that they can. They're working extra hours. They're trying to put in double time. I mean, they're trying to make ends meet to make everything kind of fit within their, their budget and their plan. And the Bible here says that these people were doing that. They're striving. They're working. It wasn't for laziness that these people did not have. The Bible says through Haggai the prophet that they were essentially putting money in their bag. But they didn't understand that the bag had holes in it. And the more that they worked, the more that they lost. What a picture Verse number 7, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Ye looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when ye brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because of mine house that is waste. And ye run every man into his own house. 
Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land, and upon the mountains, and upon the corn, and upon the new wine, and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands." In the month of January every year, our church has set this month apart to speak on the principle of biblical stewardship. Now, I'm not sure what you learned in Sunday school this morning. If you were there, maybe you didn't go. But stewardship is not primarily or exclusively about finances. I shared with our Sunday school, this, our Sunday school class this morning, stewardship is a manner of life. It's something that affects every area of life. Stewardship is becoming a manager of the resources, all the resources that God has given you. And you say, well, why do you do it every month in January? Well, there's a few reasons, but primarily and the best one, the Bible instructs us to set apart the first fruits for the Lord. And it makes a whole lot of sense that the first of our year would be the first fruits dedicated unto the Lord. And so we spend this time talking about stewardship and how we can honor God with our influence and our, our, our work ethic and, and with our finances. Before you get up and leave, this message is not primarily about finances. Amen. I cannot promise that about tonight's message. <laughs> but I will say, what you, the way that we handle our finances is a direct reflection of our heart. The Bible tells us here in Haggai that this people had come to Jerusalem to repair the house of the Lord. They had started on the work and eventually they had become discouraged. If you know anything about this portion of scripture, it's a very unique time as uh, some 42,000 and a debatable number of Jews, according to my dad and brother Billy, uh, but uh, some 42,000 Jews have come back to Jerusalem from, at, from Babylon's captivity. They're now coming back to repair the house of the Lord. It's kind of unique that they get there. They spend two years kind of getting their bearings. Then they spend two years and they lay the foundation of the temple the, the, the first part, and, and actually in Ezra chapter 3, the Bible tells us that everybody's so excited at the, the, the dedication of the foundation of the temple. In fact, there's people there that are singing and praising the Lord, and there's cymbals playing, and they're, I truly believe it's a worship service that they're dedicating the foundation of the temple. And over in the corner, I just imagine, and the Bible mentions this group, there's a group of elderly people that remember seeing the first temple in all of its glory. And while the young generation is so thankful for everything that God had done, and they're praising God, and they've got symbols, and they're singing and worshiping, over here in the corner, this elderly group of people have tears streaming down their face. Because the day that God had promised for so long had finally arrived, and they were able to see the beginning of the building of the new temple. It's a very exciting time in Scripture. It's a very exciting time in Israel's history. But that excitement is met with adversity. And what seems to be an unstoppable force is met with criticism. It's met with opponents and adversaries and they become discouraged. 
And they stop working on the temple the way that they should have. Now, I want you to understand, their hard work never stopped. They just stopped working hard on the right thing. The Bible says they're still planting fields. They're still getting drink. They're still getting clothed. They still have their houses. They're still working hard, but it ain't hardly working. See, in our day and age, we have a lot of people who are struggling to make ends meet. We hear that phrase all the time, struggling to make ends meet. That's what these people are doing. Have you ever worked hard on something only to realize that it was a complete and total failure at the end of it? Several weeks ago, I had gone and graciously put a deer out of his misery. I mean, he was just in a bad way. So I decided to uh, harvest that animal and utilize the resource that God had put there. And um, I brought it home and my wife is not a big venison fan. Uh, She did not grow up eating venison. Uh, They grew up slaughtering their own pigs and stuff, but they never uh, ate venison. So it's kind of a foreign uh, taste to her. But I brought this deer home and I was excited because I was wanting to try this new recipe. Last year for Christmas, I got this new cookbook. You say, you're a man. What are you doing getting a cookbook? Well, if it's got a deer skull on the front of it, it's okay for a man, okay? This, this cookbook is uh, called Meat Eater. And it tells you how to prepare different forms of wild game. And so uh, I, I had gone through this cookbook and I was flipping through all the recipes. And I came to one and it was called a venison blade roast. And I was like, that looks good. My wife likes roast. So I decided to make this. So I, as I said, I euthanized this poor, poor animal. Um, just it was hard for me, even harder for the deer, I assure you. Um, that was kind of dark, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, I, I was excited to cook this for my wife, so I went through all the trouble. I went to the store. I got all the ingredients. I mean, I, I, I was going to uh, kind of saute some onions. I was going to caramelize the outside of the roast. Then I was going to cook it in a crock pot. I mean, I had all of it planned. I, I, you know, we don't always carry some of the... the primary cooking ingredients and you know if you want garlic on our house you have two options garlic powder or the little cans with the pre-clove garlic but I was going a step beyond so I went and actually bought cloves of garlic I crushed those garlic cloves and pulled off all the little uh, pieces like tissue paper around I'm, I'm you can tell I'm a super good cook I know exactly whatever it's things called And by the end of it, I immediately regretted that decision. I should have just used the little bitty can of it. But anyway, I've gone through all this trouble. It takes a full day to cook. I get it out. I put it on my wife's plate. I put it on my kids' plates. I put it on my plate. I go and I'm ready. And I eat it and I, I liked it. I thought it was really good. But I looked over my wife's plate and she had maybe taken one or two bites out of it. And I said, you just don't like it, do you? She said, no, I just don't like the taste of venison. I said, well, I've been preparing these documents for you. They're court documents, the bill of divorcement. Uh, If you can just sign right here. The attorney's already cleared it. No, no, I'm just kidding. Man, I worked hard on that, but it just didn't hardly work. You see, Disney movies have taught us that the more effort you pour into something, the better the result is. And I'm just telling you, that is not reality. 
The more effort you pour into it, the more you dream, the more you wish upon your shooting star, oh, everything will work out. But the reality is, sometimes you work really hard on something and it just does not work out. And these people were working really hard, but it just did not hardly work for them. Maybe this morning you find yourself struggling. Maybe struggling financially. Maybe, maybe struggling in your marriage. Maybe struggling in your relationship between you and your children. Maybe struggling at work. Maybe struggling uh, trying to make the car start every morning. I don't know what your struggle is, but you seem to be putting forth the effort. You seem to be working hard and you just say, I just don't think it's working out the way that it ought to. I want to tell you this morning, there may be a reason for that. Let's look at this passage and see what we can learn from it. The Bible teaches us in this passage that there is an unconsulted position that these people had taken. Verse number 2, I want you to see this. The Bible says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say... So they're saying this in their heart. This is what's you know, happening at the barber shop. This is what everybody's talking about. Probably the afternoon paper or the morning paper has this headline. This people say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. And they, had, they had come to the conclusion that, hey, we know we're here and we know we're, we've, we've kind of, arrangements have been made, but... It's just not the right time. At no point in Scripture do we ever find a single person actually consult God on that issue. At no point do we ever find somebody going to God and saying, Lord, is it the right time for us to build your house? In fact, God has arranged these circumstances pretty miraculously that it would be the right time. But these people say, no, 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 the time has not yet come. As I mentioned, Ezra 3 is a very excitable passage of Scripture. The foundation is laid. Every, everybody's excited. The elderly people are weeping. The young people are worshiping. I mean, it's just a great picture in, uh, in Scripture. But then it all stops when opposition arises. And now 14 years after the laying of the foundation, we find this people has made no progress on building the temple. You see, in, in Scripture, we, we know that the circumstances surrounding this are pretty miraculous. Israel's history can kind of be bookended by two great captivities in the Old Testament. The first captivity being when they are in Egypt and a new Pharaoh arises that did not know Joseph and he takes them and places them in bondage for fear that the nation of Israel would become more mighty than the, the nation of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh puts them in subjection and he has them building cities for him. And uh, this takes place for uh, several hundred years and then God miraculously delivers them by Moses. We all know it. In fact, all of this story is contained in the book of Exodus. The word Exodus means the exit. Genesis means the beginning and Exodus means the exit. They're, they're exiting Egypt. So Exodus is the first great captivity. But in the book of Daniel, another captivity starts. It's the Babylonian captivity. This captivity lasted a shorter time period, but still 70 years. 
During that time, King Nebuchadnezzar had come and taken the, uh, besieged the city of Jerusalem, taken Daniel and his compatriots with him and, and put them in bondage, placed uh, Jerusalem and the Israelites in, in subjection. I mean, all this takes place. And after this 70 years, they are brought out by a man by the name of King Cyrus. See, while they were in Babylon, uh, King Darius overthrew King Nebuchadnezzar of Persia or, or of, of Babylon. So you have the Babylonian captivity, which kind of becomes the Persian captivity. And King Cyrus one day arises and says, the Lord's put it on my heart to rebuild his temple. Is there somebody that'd be willing to go? Pretty miraculous that a pagan and secular king would say one day, I think we ought to rebuild God's house. But he does. And he lets these Jews go back to Jerusalem for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. The world's financing the work of God. But did you know that that's not an uncommon theme in Scripture? That God would somehow allow the world to benefit His work? See, there's a church in the book of Revelation by the name of the church at Philadelphia. You'll be familiar with that name. It means the city of brotherly love. Well, the reason that title is given to that name is because a king of Pergamos named King Attalus had a very peculiar and unique love for his brother. And when he established this city, Philadelphia, he named it for the affection that he had for his brother. Long story short, that city, Philadelphia, had three major trade routes that ran through it. And it served as a sort of launching pad to reach unreached areas to spread Grecian culture throughout the region. It was uh, in Asia Minor, as you may know, but it's on the far western side, or I'm sorry, the far eastern side. The western side was much more developed, but the, the further east you went, the more barren it got. And so Philadelphia sits right on the edge, reaching out to those regions to what they called the heathen. It was set up that these three major trade routes would come through Philadelphia, so that there would be a lot of people coming through there and that as they came, they'd be introduced to Greek religion, Greek philosophy, uh, Greek mannerisms and language. Really, the Greek culture rested there in, per- uh, there in Philadelphia. The city was unique and it was built by King Attalus to be uh, the outpost for Greek culture. You say, why are you going to all this? Because in the book of Revelation, when God writes a letter to that church... Now, stay with me. I know we're kind of in the weeds here, but there's a point. When God writes the church at Philadelphia, He says these words. Behold, I have set before you an open door that no man can shut. Kind of a strange thing to say to a church. In fact, if you read on, you find the church is actually a pretty small church. It says, though thou hast little strength. There's, they're not many in number. Well, what's, what's the Bible saying? Well, the Bible is saying this. God is telling his church, I have made King Attalus build you a city so that your church can have a greater influence to regions unknown. 
the open door that no man can shut, that the king financed, God established all of this work so that his work might go forward. God uses the world to increase his kingdom. It's actually pretty remarkable. Hey, the money's got to come from somewhere, right? Someone once asked me, Brother Andrew, if you won the lottery, would you tithe off of it? Yes, I would tithe much more than that. And then I'd enjoy the rest of it. You say, well, that's bad money. It's all bad money when you come to think of it. It's all covered in germs. Probably bad people held on to it at one time or another. I mean, the other day my son came to me and he just goes, bleh, and spit quarters out of his mouth. And I was like, unclean, unclean. <laughs> it's all bad money, but... God can take filthy lucre and turn it into eternal currency. It's pretty remarkable. And what this nation had forgotten was God had established this miraculous set of circumstances so that they would return to their land and they could build God's house with permission and with provision from a secular, pagan, worldly king. God set these circumstances up. And now they sit back and they say, it is not time for us to build. God sits in heaven and says, are you kidding me? With everything I've given you, with all the circumstances that I've arranged, you're going to get to the point where you can build and you're going to say, you know what, it's just too hard. You know what, I can't believe we got here and people actually criticized me for this. God's work never was called easy. God never promised ease. God has blessed us as a people and as a nation more than probably any other nation apart from Israel in world history. We have enjoyed plenty and bounty for far longer than probably any other nation that I can recall. We have so much. And yet, what are we doing with it? What are you doing with the influence that God has given you? Did you know that God has set before you an open door? If you have Facebook... God has set before you an open door. And you say, well, there's a lot of bad things come through that door. Yes, but what are you putting out that door? You have a worldwide influence with all 72 of your followers. But God has put before us an open door. This morning, that camera right there is putting this ugly mug literally in red china. In North Korea, if you have a, a, a VSP you or a VPN, you can watch this service. An open door. I mean, this is remarkable. God has given us so much, but here's the question. What are we doing with it? What are you doing with it, with, with what God has given you? What are you doing with the finances? What are you doing with the influence? God has set before you an open door. And yet my fear is many of us are saying, the time has not come. It's just not time, Brother Andrew. The kids are still young. The house is still really hectic. Once they get out of the house a little bit, we'll become way more faithful to church. It's just so hard to get out of school on, on Wednesday and then come. They have homework and it's hard to be in church. The time's not come. You know what? Excuses are like armpits. Everybody's got a couple of them and they all stink. 
God has set before us so much. What are we doing with it? This morning, I don't want you to only see an unconsulted position, but I want you to see, secondly, an unfortunate prioritization. The Bible says, they say, well, time's not come for us to build the house, and this is what God says to them. Oh, okay. Verse number four. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lying waste? In other words, God says, oh, oh, I see how it is. I arrange for you to come back from exile, from captivity. I establish, I grant you permission to build my house. You get there, you're met with just a little bit of adversity and you just become so discouraged that you say, oh, Brother Andrew, oh, it's just so hard. Oh, Lord, it's just so hard that we would, we would have to face this struggle. And God says, and all the while... You're getting to go home to your sweet little house. In fact, what he says is he calls it their sealed house. It speaks of a stabilized house, a reinforced house that has been boarded up. In other words, they weren't planning on just staying temporarily. I mean, this was their life. This is where they're going to live. This is their future. This wasn't dwelling in tents. I mean, they had built sealed houses. And now God says, I see how it is. You've neglected my house while enjoying yours. They had allowed their personal comfort to become their priority instead of obedience to God. Did you know God is not happy when you're happy? I don't want that to sound horrible. I do think it needs further explanation. But God is not primarily concerned with your happiness so much as He is your obedience. Now, I believe this is on my heart. An obedient Christian is always a happy Christian. But what we've done is we've put happiness in front of obedience, and God says that's not the way it should go. Oh, you're, you're enjoying life, but you've forgotten my house. What a shame it is when God's people take their time and kind of procrastinate and put their priorities in front of God's. Fourteen years this people have been here. See, it took them two years to kind of come and and be established in the area. Two years to build the foundation of the temple. And now 14 years has passed. In fact, if you ask me, God has shown them tremendous patience. Fourteen years. For some of us that are getting a little older, 14 years does not seem so long ago. 14 years ago would have been 2004. Would you believe that in just a few weeks, it will have been the 14th year anniversary from when Mark Zuckerberg put Facebook on the, on the internet uh, from his Harvard dorm room? 14 years ago, Phil Mickelson won his very first major championship. And just a few weeks later, uh, Barry Bonds hit his 661st home run to pass Willie Mays. June 11, 2004, Ronald Reagan's funeral was held at Washington National Cathedral. Now, 14 years, a lot can happen in 14 years. Yeah, this people said, oh, the time's not come. And I think God in heaven was saying, well, when is the time going to come? When is it going to become convenient for you to obey me? 
When is it going to fit your criteria of being the right set of circumstances that you might actually say, you know what, Lord, we want to do what you want us to do. If you've got this spirit and you've got this attitude where you say, Lord, it's just not the right time. God looks at you and says, you'll probably never get to it if I don't provoke you. You'll probably never get around to it. In college, we had these uh, evil little things handed out on the first day of class. I think they were called syllabus or syllabi. I still have no clue. I know there's a plural form in there somewhere, but I'm not sure when to use it properly. The first day of class, they would hand these papers out and they would have every project, every due date and everything on there as to when it was to be turned in. They would have what items constituted what percentages of our grades. So if you had maybe a final exam, that might be 20% of your grade. And the day one, you knew when these things were due. And I mean, if you were a wise student, you would probably go back to your dorm, open your you know, planner, and you'd write these things down. Me, I just waited till I sensed a level of panic in the, in the classroom. And I was like, hey, what's up, guys? Oh, we have a project due uh, tomorrow. Oh, there's that, you know. And as much as I would love to say that I was a great student, I was the kind of student that when... The deadline was not imminent. I was not that disciplined. But boy, I tell you what. I pulled off some miraculous feats. In fact, it was there that God showed me what He could do through me. (laughs) In three hours in Google, God did miracles. You see, deadlines make deals. They have a saying in sports culture. Deadlines make deals. I feel like if God had never prompted these people through Haggai, if he had never sent someone to them, the answer would have always stayed the same. You know what? The timing is just not right. It's not God's will today. Nobody ever bothered to consult God on the issue. They were just all convinced that if it didn't meet their level of comfort and it didn't meet their agenda, then they were okay with what was going on. And God says, all the while you dwell in your sealed houses and my house lies in waste. These people had an unfortunate prioritization. They had placed their priorities over God's. And I want to share with you the final kind of thought this morning. Because of this, there was an unrealized plight in their life. They understood that things had been set against them, but they did not attribute it to the right source. You see what I mean? I I mentioned earlier that a lot of people in our culture today are having trouble making ends meet and they're struggling uh, getting enough work or enough hours or whatever the case may be. And I wonder if some of this is not found in this thought. That as we have failed to obey God, we have, by virtue, have God, God has placed upon our life a plight that we don't even realize is from Him. We view it as circumstances, coincidences. We call them tough situations. But at no point in our carnal mindset do we ever think that God may have His hand pushing against us. 
We think of God as a benevolent father, and you're right, he absolutely is. And as a loving father, he chasteneth the sons that he loves. And I wonder if some of the struggle that Christians in America face is not because we are so focused on our comfort and our priorities and our conveniences that God does not look in heaven and say, you've got everything you want and you're doing nothing for me with it. And so He places His hand upon us and pushes against us so that even good ideas come to nothing. Even good procedures and planning accomplish nothing. The Bible says in verse number 5 and again in verse number 7, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. The Hebrew figure of speech literally means this. Put your heart on your roads. Take thought about the trails you lead. In other words, ponder your paths. Think about what you're doing. When you just take a step back, I mean, when you're in the middle of the grindstone and you're trying to make it work and and you're trying to put the money in the bag and you're trying to plant the seed and you're trying to get the water, all of this is just the struggle. And God says, take a step back and consider your ways. And he says there's two paths of every Christian. Number one, there's a path of struggle. Verse number five, he says this, consider your ways... Ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a, into a bag with holes. In other words, every endeavor you set out to do, you become frustrated because you are not succeeding at them. It's a path of struggle. Years ago, my dad and I started farming about 20 acres on, on our family farm. And, and uh, we have a good time with it. It's a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of thought, and most years, a lot of money. But one thing we have learned through all of this is we are very bad farmers. It's a very good thing God called us into the ministry he counted us faithful, putting us into the ministry, and he realized that if we had to plow the ground for our food, we would never make ends meet. And so, But we do have farmers in the church, guys that do it for a living, and so every once in a while we'll go to them and ask advice. And, and it was a couple years ago we went to one of the farmers and we said, man, we just we put all this money into it, we put seed in the ground, and we just don't ever see it come up like it should. And he said, well, how much are you planting? We told him, well, we're planting about 50 pounds an acre. He said, double it. Would you believe that the year after we did that, we had a little bit better return? The more seed you put in the ground, it makes sense, the more return you would have. He that soweth bountifully will reap bountifully. It makes a lot of sense. That wasn't the case for these people. They had sown much and reaped little. God had chosen to defy even the laws of logic and nature. He said, if you will not prioritize me in your life, you will sow much, you will work hard, and you will see no direct result from your labor. 
the path of struggle. What we do is we set out on the path of comfort, not realizing that it is by virtue the path of struggle. We, we seek comfort, we end up struggling. That's the path of struggle. You have sown much, but you have reaped little. And in this, there is certainly a picture for the sinner. As the Bible is saying that this people had sown much and they were trying to do everything the right way and they were trying to sow much and get drink and uh, be clothed and they were doing everything as good as they could. And God says, but it's all coming to nothing. And I'm telling you, there are people in this world this very morning that, that are in all sorts of walks of life that are trying their best to figure out what life is all about. If you type this phrase into Google, what is the meaning? The, one of the very top results is this, of life. People are trying to figure out what is the meaning of life? What are we doing here? And a lot of people struggle to find the answer. A lot of people are pouring themselves into work only to find misery. A lot of people are trying to satisfy themselves with the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And they're finding that there is no satisfaction in any of that. And the reason is because God has put into the heart of every man a desire to fellowship with Him. In fact... When the puzzle perfectly fit together, God and man fit together. But the puzzle has been torn apart. And we are constantly seeking renewal and restoration with our Creator. Yeah. And so many people in this world, and I would go so far as to even to say, people that would check Christian on their Facebook page. Third mention of Facebook, by the, by the way, this morning. But I would go so far as to say, even people that put Christian on their Facebook page... They, they're trying to figure out why they can't find happiness and why they can't find peace and why they can't find joy. My friend, listen to me. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no happiness if you do not know Christ as your personal Savior. There is no second place. There is no better alternative that cannot be found in the bottom of a bottle. It cannot be found at the end of a needle. It cannot be found in any magazine or any literature anywhere. What this book says is Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto me but by the Father, uh, but through, the, through me to the Father. You see, Jesus is what gives us abundant life. And this morning, maybe you're finding your life is just in pieces. Even people you love, you can't get along with. Everybody seems to be against you. The whole world set itself at naught against you. And I'm telling you this morning, until you find peace with God, you'll never have peace with this world. Until you find your real meaning through the person of Jesus Christ, you will never find true meaning as to who you really are. God says you are His creation. God says you are His affection. God says that if you will come to Him... He will tell you that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. He will tell you that you have been made just a little lower than the angels. He will tell you that He has put creation under your dominion. He has esteemed you so highly and given you favor, so much so that He sent His Son to die for you. You will not find meaning until you find meaning in Jesus Christ. This people was on the path of struggle but I want you to see the second path, and we're done this morning. The path of submission. Verse number 7. The second, consider your ways. 
Here's the simple truth. Here's all you have to do. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the house. God's will is not really changing. Sometimes people think that God's will is like a karaoke machine or like, like one of those, uh, the only place I can think of it, is that a karaoke machine at Waffle House where you put the quarters in? And the Waffle House is the only place I ever go that has those, you know. Jukebox, there we go, there we go. Dad knows that from the bars. I know that from Waffle House. <laughs> but you see, a lot of people think that God's will is like a jukebox that, you know, it plays for just a little time and then the next song comes up or the next plan comes up. No, 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 no. 14 years has passed, God's will has stayed the same. They were always to build the house. God had brought them back for this exact purpose. He says, go up into the mountain, bring wood and build the house. I will take pleasure in it and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Well, if we, we, there's a path of struggle, the only other path is one of submission. You will find the most pleasure in your life when God gets the most pleasure out of your life. He says, all you got to do is obey me and I'll, I'll find pleasure in it. I will be glorified when you obey me. Did you know that every time a Christian obeys God, God is glorified? God is glorified. And the purpose of the Christian's life is to glorify the Lord. And we do this by, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. The key component to every Christian's life is this, trust. If we trust, God does the rest. Trust is when we give God our faith, when we place our faith in God. We place our faith in God to meet the needs of our life. We place our faith in God to use us in the places that He has us. When we trust God, life's problems seem to dissipate. It's when we become commander-in-chief of our life that we become miserable. The other day, my wife was a little bit overwhelmed. Three kids and a husband that acts like one will kind of do that to you. But she was struggling and the house had just become a bit out of control for her. Like, you know, for me, if I can see visible floor space, I'm good. As long as I can hop from clean spot to clean spot, I'm really pretty okay. But my wife, she begins to panic when the house isn't right and everything's not perfectly in order. And so uh, she was cooking supper while doing the dishes and doing laundry and cleaning the house. And I was sitting on my couch, probably reading my Bible or watching the Mavericks play. One of the two. I can't remember at the exact time. But I looked over and I just felt led to say, babe, what can I do to help you? I can see you're carrying this load, this shouldering this huge burden. And I don't know why it is, but it seems like when she's the most busy and she's doing the dishes, cooking supper and doing this, all the kids go to her. I don't know why I'm sitting on the couch doing nothing. And yet mommy has to solve every problem. I don't understand. But man, she's just over and I said, babe, what can I do to help? By the way, we're having a couple's retreat. I'll be one of the keynote speakers. 
Just kidding, I'm not the keynote speaker, to be clear. And she says, you know, because here's the thing. As I mentioned earlier, I like, clean, I like cooking supper. I'm a meat eater. I like, you know, I like experimenting in the kitchen. I'll even vacuum. I'm a king vacuumer. Don't tell her I said this, but I am. I'm good at it. I get my rhythm going. I'm listening to a podcast every word. I mean, I make the little stripes. Who do you think taught these guys how to do the stripes? Not me. (laughs) I said, babe, what can I do to help? She says, you know, honey, if you would just occasionally, when you see see the dishes, could you do those? You know when people have phobias... Like, I've never really believed that. Like, I always struggle when people tell me they're, like, deathly afraid of something. I'm like, ah. Or you just don't like it. You know, I've really struggled with that. But I think I have a phobia about soggy Captain Crunch. <laughs> when unidentifiable foods have set in a moist environment for any length of time, they become disgusting. And I wanted her to say, you know, babe, if you just come cook some spaghetti, that'd be great. I can do that. I like cooking. No, she came up with the dishes. <laughs> I told her, I said, all the stuff, that's the one I least like. That and folding the laundry, doing the laundry. Don't prefer vacuuming. I don't like cleaning the bathrooms. But really, my point is this. <laughs> when I asked her what she wanted me to do, I was volunteering myself for whatever she wanted me to do. What we did when we got saved was we said, God, you have paid a debt that we could not pay, and we owe you more than we could ever repay. God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. So God says, okay, obey me, honor me, love me, and serve me. And a lot of times we just... uh, I've got a phobia about the serving part. I really don't like the part where I have to give my money, you know. Things are tied and, listen, I take 90% of everything that comes in my way and God's blessing than 150% and God's curse. I don't know, God, that's a pretty big ask. All the while we dwell in our sealed houses... We're enjoying life. And God says, but my house lie in waste. I have things for you to do. And yet we can't take our eyes off ourselves and place them on him. This morning, if you're working hard and it ain't working, there's a chance you ain't working for the right master. 